Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. Please also consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to our next topic. I'm good, John. How are you? I'm well. Good to, good to see you. Can you guys see me? I can't, I can't see myself, so I don't know if I'm on camera or not. Yeah, I think we're, we're all on we're all good. Awesome. How much time do you have, Jason? Uh, about an hour or so. Cool. Okay, okay. Yeah. All right, so let's just get rolling. I mean, I mean, everybody knows who you are. Everybody's listening is going to know who you are. <laughs> I think so, but. So let's get into some let's get into some stuff, you know, because there's a lot of lot of I want to pick your brain on a couple of things. So first yeah. thing is, you probably know, I eat a bunch of meat and I've been promoting yes. that. And, you know, it's crazy. It's not crazy. Whatever. It seems to work for some people. One of the questions I always get, and you're a nephrologist. So you're the guy, man. I've talked to Ted Name and I've talked to Stu Phillips about protein and, and wiping out your kidneys. Can you tell me, does, pro, does protein destroy your kidneys? You know, and, and I, I kind of know what I think the answer is, but it's good to hear it. And then, the, so let me hear your take on that. And then I want to talk to you about people that already have renal disease. And then how do, how do we, how do you manage that with regard to protein? Because I know there's some, still even some controversy about that. So let me just hear a quick take on your thoughts on protein and kidney. Yeah, and then we'll, so we'll, we'll start with where this sort of thing came from. So um, in chronic kidney disease, what happens is that you have a lot of metabolism to urea. So urea is sort of a waste product of uh, sort of protein metabolism, that kind of thing. So the kidneys excrete a lot of urea. So the idea had always been that if you're eating a lot of protein and you have kidney disease already, uh, then it's not good because you're going to not be able to excrete all the urea. It doesn't really mean that it's going to hurt the kidneys. It just means this urea is going to build up more than if you didn't have as much urea. So, but, but you know, this was from about, I don't know, like uh, 30 years ago maybe. It was basically very hand-waving, like, hey, you know, it makes the urea go up and urea is high, so therefore it's bad for the kidney. Not real scientific. So they tested it, um, what, probably like 15 years ago in a big trial uh, in the NIH, and they're like, okay, well, does low-protein diets help kidney disease? And the answer was basically no. It made no difference. You ate a lot of protein, you ate a little protein, really made no difference whatsoever to people with chronic kidney disease. So eating a low-protein diet, which had been sort of a staple of what the renal dietitians had always promoted, had really no evidence behind it. So then, um, but, but that idea was there from about 15, 20 years ago. So then it kind of trickled into this whole thing that, hey, protein's going to kill your kidney. So they did a couple analyses on big uh, renal trials uh, in people without CKD, so sort of um, just or mild CKD, sort of less than stage three out of five sort of thing, right? So stage three, stage four, stage five, those are more severe. If you have relatively normal kidney disease, does a lot of protein damage your, your kidneys? And the answer was basically no. So it didn't make any difference whatsoever. And it doesn't seem to make a lot of difference either if you have kidney disease or if you don't have kidney disease, it really wasn't that bad for you. Like there's a lot of things that you need to worry about in kidney disease. Eating too much protein is probably one of the very lowest ones on the list. I mean, obviously high blood pressure is way up there. Diabetes, of course, is way up there. So, you know, switching to eating a whole lot of 
carbohydrates, which is going to make your sugars go up, not a really good idea because type 2 diabetes way worse for your kidneys than a lot of protein, which we're not even sure if is bad for your kidneys or not. So there may be some people think there's some animal data and stuff, but the truth is that there's really no data, no human data that's you know, that really shows it. It's it's one of these urban myths, you know. So, so and, and, you know, obviously as a nephrologist, you know, you, you, you have a lot of knowledge about the kidney, right? So the other thing that I often see people will go on a high protein diet and they'll say their, you know, their, their BUN will be a little high, you know, be slightly above normal range, or they may see their creatinine a little high. You know, their GFR tends to be still normal. What do you say about the people who say, wait a minute, your BUN's up? Is that, is that a huge problem in all cases or is it, is it conditional? And how do, we, how do we sort that out? No, the high BUN is basically because you're metabolizing a lot of this. Uh, and so BUN is blood urea nitrogen which is that sort of waste product from metabolism of, excuse me, of protein. So if you're taking in a lot of protein, then you're going to have a lot of urea, which is going to need to be excreted. But it's a steady state there, right? So if you're putting in a lot of urea, your blood urea nitrogen is going to be high. So that's expected. And this is what you get taught in medical school. Um, it just means that you're, you're eating more protein, which is exactly what you are, right? Right. So, Jason, I want, there are three sort of there are two major topics I want to talk about because, you, you know, I read your book, The Beastie Code. I, it was a wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. I know you wrote The Diabetes Code, which I think I want to, you know, get into some of that as well. Uh, and then I want to talk about fasting. <laughs> There's so many good things out here. But the other thing that you're doing lately, which I, I really I think is, is, is it needs to be done, is you're pointing out the conflict of interest that is occurring in, in the current medical model. I mean, we just have, it's, it's almost sickening to see. I've experienced it. I know what you're talking about. I mean, literally, if I wanted to, I could have eaten free the rest of my life from some drug-sponsored company dinner every night of my life if I wanted. You know how it is. Uh, so yeah. I know, talk a little bit about that. I know you've been writing essentially about how we're, we're seeing all this money being funneled into physicians to basically, you know, uh, you know spew this, pro-drug uh, agenda. Can you talk a little yeah, bit about that? It's, it's, it's very bad. And the problem is that doctors don't even know how bad it is. Um, so if you go down the line, you see money going into the medical system from the top to the bottom. So you start with the universities. They're taking millions of dollars to do research, right? And research is everything from, you know, the running the lab and doing actual research to going on these expensive conferences like nobody has a conference in you know cedar falls iowa because it's freaking cold they all go to paris and vienna and stuff and guess what the research budget pays for it because you're having the european association of whatever meeting there so these you know tens of thousands of dollars goes to travel fees and or gets taken out of the research budget so the researchers get money they get millions of dollars of research funds the journal editors get money. So one of the latest studies and uh, pointed out that for the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, or JAC, the average editor was taking home about $400,000 each from drug companies. And guess what? That journal loves the drugs, right? Loves the stents. <laughs> like, what the hell? Like, these are the guys who are supposed to be teaching the doctors though this is the evidence but remember editors decide what gets published how it gets published what what 
you know, modifications you're going to make. It's like the New York, it's as if the New York Times is taking millions of dollars from Coca-Cola and then publishing all this stuff about, oh, sugar's wonderful for you. You know, you should drink more Coca-Cola. We'd say, what the hell? Get the hell out of here. But that's what's happening, right? So the university are taking money. The researchers are taking money. All the doctors in the university are taking money. So there's a great study that showed that the more prominent the doctor, the more money they take out. Because, you know, this is all publicly available information now, right? With the ProPublica, uh, Dollars for Docs project. What they showed was that if you're a very prominent cancer doctor, you're, making, you're taking more money from the drug company. Millions of dollars. Like, we're not talking chump change here, right? We're not talking a free pen. Like, what's ridiculous is that you and I can't get a free pen, which I don't need anyway, right? But that's, we're not allowed to do that. At a conference, we're not allowed to take a free pen. But this professor can take a couple million bucks. And then he goes and writes guidelines. You look at guidelines, for example, where they recommend to doctors what drugs to use, when to use it. Virtually every single person on those guidelines committee is paid by pharmaceutical companies. So you have guidelines which are biased, research which is biased, and here's the thing, we know that if you are a researcher and you're paid by pharmaceutical, you're like five times more likely to find a favorable result. You don't bite the hand that feeds you. That's a basic human rule. But the doctors who do the research think they're completely unbiased. They're not. They're completely biased and they don't even know it. And so, so the researchers, the journal editors, the, um, uh, you know, the, the doctors who, who go out and teach. So you see all these, you know, these free, free dinners. So what Sean's talking about, Zach, is that if you're a doctor and it starts from like medical school, these drug reps will invite you out to fancy dinners. Now, they're not taking you to McDonald's. <laughs> they're taking you to the fanciest dinner that you can think of. Okay, so the very most expensive restaurant in your town, free dinner, you know, three courses, open bar, everything's all set for you, and you listen to a talk. The speaker of that talk gets paid a couple thousand bucks per. And it's like, for what? For a one-hour talk. And the worst part is they don't even make their own slides. They get a prepackaged slide pack. So they're basically trained monkeys. Here's what to say. Just say it and we'll pay you $2,000. And the professors love that because what? A couple, a free dinner, like a, you know, three, $400 dinner for free, plus 2000 bucks on the side for one night. There are professors doing this like, you know, three, four nights a week. It's ridiculous. And they're not just some Joe doctor. They are targeted specifically to the most prominent doctors. So, so, so everybody down the line, all the way to the doctors who are going to these free dinners, and I used to go, I know, because I didn't, I didn't know better, but I've stopped going like for the last five years or something. Um, but everybody is in on it. So everybody's getting this message of drugs, 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 drugs. Everybody thinks that drugs are great. So the minute you start suggesting that you can get better from your diabetes through diet, changes then all of a sudden you get attacked like crazy people say you're against the you know you're not evidence-based it's like but the evidence is completely biased if you look at publication bias for example and there are studies on this as well that if you look at for example sugared sweetened beverages and obesity the link between sugar and obesity um, and then you break it down between those that are funded by the sugar industry and those that are not so 83 percent 
of those who are funded by sugar find that sugar is not linked with obesity. Surprise, surprise. The ones that are not funded by sugar, 83% find that they are associated with obesity. It's like, come on. So if you have all your studies, like in the statins and all of this sort of diabetes, like the whole of medicine, um, what you find is that all the studies are drug company studies, and therefore, it's not a it's not a unbiased uh, selection. Basically, you're getting the drug company study of why the drug is good, and you think that that's the truth. Ah. It's terrible. Like the whole thing is terrible. And 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 the thing is that these rules are just not. They don't. They they like doctors are the only ones who think that this is acceptable because if you look at, um, for example, the um, government. If if you found out that Coca Cola was paying your senator a few million bucks a year, if you found out he was paying you know your your uh, policeman a few hundred thousand dollars a year, he was paying judges. You'd say, oh my God, that's corruption, mm. and it is. If you find out that the journalist is taking money, it's corruption. When it's a doctor, when it's a researcher, hey, that's the way life is. I actually right? want to follow up a bit on that because I, th I think the interesting thing that I'm realizing, and we, we had Dr. Joel Kahn on last, our last episode, and the thing I found intriguing about having him on the show was uh, he very much kind of is a lifestyle first. He follows a, almost a completely different diet than what Sean and I do and advocates for a completely different nutritional approach. And, you know, like Sean and he go back and forth a bit on Twitter about it. Um, but one thing in common was his message was, you know, a lot of this stuff is lifestyle based. We can fix your lifestyle. Let's do that first. And then if worse comes to worse and we have to give you some sort of medication, that's kind of last resort. And I think that kind of runs, I guess, across lines depending no matter what your nutritional protocol is. So do you think like is that the answer to kind of getting to the bottom of this, having like all these different uh, nutritional approaches regardless of whether they're vegan, carnivore, paleo, keto, flexible dieting, all this other stuff? Do we all need to kind of come together with one at least uniform message saying lifestyle first, let's take care of that? And then we can kind of settle the rest of the argument as to whether there's a perfect diet or if it's a, a you know a, a combination of them depending on the person, depending on the scenario type of thing. I think I think it's absolutely right. So all the vegans and stuff, um, I have nothing against them, like because it's the same sort of thing. I just don't completely agree with them in that. What I think is important is not necessarily whether it comes from an animal or a plant. Like from an ethical reason, you might say it's important if it comes from an animal or a plant. But from a physiologic standpoint of is it healthy, it can come from animals or plants and still be healthy. That's my opinion. We're omnivores. Like if, I was a, if we were lions, of course, eating plants would be terrible. And if we were like moose, eating animals would be terrible. So it's – it's uh, but we're omnivores. So you, you can do both. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that, you know, so I don't, I don't, I don't agree with their message that you must be a vegan to be healthy. Like that, that to me seems wrong. Uh, but I, I completely agree with a lot of their stance in terms of lifestyle first. I think that that message is very good. They're actually, you know, if you, if you read some of their stuff, it gets lost in all the veganism, but there's a lot of stuff in there about fasting. They support the mm -hmm. fasting as well, which is what I, 
you know, promote more than necessarily being one or the other. That is, I think you could be a, I think you could eat um, carbs and still be very healthy because there are societies that have done that. So if you look at, uh, for example, Okinawa, or if you look at, uh, you know, China, for example. So China is a very interesting example because in the 80s, they're eating tons of white rice. And it's all white. It's not brown. Some people say, oh, it's brown. It's not brown. I know because my parents were from there. It's all white rice. And 300 grams a day of carbohydrates. But there's almost zero obesity and almost zero type 2 diabetes. So, you know, you can do it, but you have to eat in a, in a proper manner. That is, they're not eating all the time. They're eating extremely low in sugar and all this sort of stuff. So there are differences that, um, you know, are important. I think the... Uh, I think that the um, – did we lose Sean there? Yeah, I think he, he fell off. He's on. He's just uh, – I think he's trying to get on through a different line. Let me send him a message so he joins, joins this one. Um, but yeah, you, can, you can keep going. He'll hop back on when he gets a Okay, yeah. I think that you can be um, – you can do both. You can be a vegan. You can be omnivore. You can be carnivore. You can do all kinds of things. You could even eat mostly white rice as they did in China. But if you keep your sort of hormones in check, that is the insulin and you're not eating all the time and you're fasting properly and you're not eating a lot of sugar, I think you can still do very well. So that's the thing in terms of the diet. They, but I agree, a lot of, a lot of the, what they also fight is this sort of institutional bias towards medications, which I think we should, we should um, you know, be all, all together on that because I think well, – there he is. I think that is probably as big an issue uh, as anything. I mean, it's uh, you look at the, the the statins, for example, and it's like, oh, everybody wants to put it in the drinking water. I'm like, <laughs> there's a role for it, but not in everybody. Right. And the for the diabetics, it's like we shouldn't even be talking about medications for type two diabetics. We should be talking about lifestyle. You know, one, two, three, four, and five. And I always say that. You know, the problem is that it's type 2 diabetes, for example, is a dietary disease. And then we threw a lot of drugs at it. And then we said, oh, I wonder why we're failing. It's like because you didn't fix the diet. Uh -huh. And if you ever go to a lecture like um, on type 2 diabetes, what happens is that, and I did this a few years ago, um, the first thing they say is that, you know, treatment for type 2 diabetes. Number one, two, and three is lifestyle. Then they spent the next 59 minutes talking about drugs. It's like, well, what message do you think that sends to a doctor? And it says, the only thing that's important is giving the right drugs. So this is, this is a big problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think it, it, it seems like, uh, you know, if you want to identify one variable that kind of crosses uh, most dietary approaches that issue when issues start to raise is when you have that excess so like when you're talking about you know the folks in okinawa eating 300 grams of carbohydrates of white rice like they were eating 300 grams of carbohydrates probably within an energy balance or deficit at times so they probably you know they're not running into all these like excessive metabolic issues um so i think i think there's something with that and i think there's something with like the fasting too and um and that's one thing we'd, we'd love to talk to you about too is kind of like where you see fasting heading and kind of like how your approach is similar differs from say like uh um Dr. Longo um you know we're seeing it kind of raise up in different forms and kind of but we're we're getting that same message that there's a purpose there and um 
I, I guess the first question that how much of that do you think it, that's kind of putting things back into perspective in terms of uh, an energy balance where you know we're, we live in a society where you can get anything you want pretty much whenever you want it so it's very easy to overeat so if you hold yourself accountable by saying well I'm going to do this fast every once in a while you kind of make it a little more difficult to to get up into those uh, excessive quantities. Yeah, I think that's right. Because remember that, so if you go back to, say, the 60s and 70s, people aren't obese. There's no obesity epidemic yet. Um, but they're also not deliberately restricting themselves either. So in terms of what they eat, they're eating white bread, they're eating ice cream and Oreo cookies and stuff. But yet they stayed in this sort of energy balance pretty easily. That is unconsciously. That is, our body actually has mechanisms to stay at a certain weight. Because if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, being fat is not good if you're on the plains of Africa. You're either going to get eaten by a lion or you're not going to be able to catch food because you're too fat. So being fat is actually very, very bad for you. So we have actually evolved mechanisms to maintain our sort of body fatness at a lean level. And that's, you know, eating real foods does that because if you eat things like you know, uh, a lot of steak, for example, it naturally keeps you full. So it activates those satiety mechanisms and you don't eat. The way you get around all these satiety mechanisms is to process the hell out of the food. So, and it, it applies, I think, not just to the carbohydrates. So you can eat refined carbohydrates like flour and sugar, for example, um, but there's also refined meats and there's also refined um, vegetable oils, for example, all of which I think are relatively bad for you. So the, th the, the, the thing is that when you start eating refined foods, then you don't activate those natural satiety mechanisms. So if you eat, say, flour, so bread, then you've stripped out all the protein, you've stripped out all the fat, and you've you know, made it into a very, very fine dust because flour is very, very fine, right? You throw it in the air, it sort of just stays up there. So what happens is that it gets absorbed very quickly and then goes down very quickly. You bypass the natural satiety mechanisms and therefore you wind up eating more than you should and you can't stand that natural energy balance, which is actually not a natural part of us. So eat, eating natural foods, which was sort of the, the rule back then, was that if you're surrounded by a lot of unnatural foods like donuts for example mm -hmm. right lots of flour and sugar then you you know you know having that fasting period does make it easy because it means you just stick to your routine in the 70s again the food is not that available but people also were not encouraged to eat that is it's it's sort of insane to think that what we need to do is like we train our kids to eat all the time that is, if you go to school, your son or daughter gets, you know, breakfast at home and then a mid-morning snack and then lunch and then an after-school snack and then dinner. And then if they play soccer, somebody, some parent always thinks that's important for them to have a snack between the two halves of soccer. It's like, okay, you're eating six times a day. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, now you're just, you're, you know, and it's highly refined food. So you're, you're eating a lot more frequently then you should and you're getting around these natural satiety mechanisms because you weren't hungry. It's just that somebody told you that you should eat and we train this into our kids and then wonder why we have this sort of obesity epidemic. But we have natural ways to get around that, one of which is to sort of naturally cycle feeding and fasting, which is why we have the word breakfast. It, you have to fast in order to break it. 
And therefore, if you eat for 10 or 12 hours of the day and fast for 12 or 14 hours a day, you naturally cycle your feeding and fasting. And that's one sort of way to get around it. And it makes it easy because if you think to yourself, okay, I ate dinner, that's it, nothing till breakfast, or you know, I'm, I'm not eating until 12 noon, then it's, it's, it's sort of automatic. And what you have to do is make it automatic that, oh, hey, if you walk by um, the donut store or, or McDonald's, you're not going to say, hey, you know what, I'd like to eat mm -hmm. that where it is because now it's automatic. And what you got to do for a lot of this stuff is make make it automatic so that you don't have to think about it, mm -hmm. which is what we did in the sort of 70s and 60s and sort of. Yeah, and I think too, like you add that structure and that helps a lot of people too. Like at first they have to like really kind of maybe think about it, but then after a while it becomes kind of intuitive and then they just kind of eat within that window almost, almost by default. And, you know, it's really interesting when you brought up the school side of things too, because I remember, um, you know, I used to be a, uh, a, a middle school and a high school teacher and then obviously I went to school myself too so like I remember when I was a kid through eighth grade I think we had like three recesses a day and they ranged from like 20 minutes to 30 minutes then we'd, we'd have Fayette also like a couple times a week and we'd have those snacks a lot of times but they were always like maybe right after one of those recesses or something like that so we kind of had at least we had a, a period of activity following a, like a, a small snack or um, or we'd have lunch and then we'd go out for recess. So then we'd move around a bit. So the food was kind of centered around activity as well. And then when I started teaching, it seemed like the more the longer I taught, the further we'd get away from the activity side of things. But not only did we not remove the snacking, we made it even easier. Started setting yeah. up vending machines where kids could go there and get a you know a soda or you know a Snickers bar and all that other stuff at any point during the day and it's, and I, I remember thinking about that I was like I was teaching seventh grade I'm like these kids go out for recess once a day when I was in seventh grade I went out three times and then you know Fayette is uh, it was there too but it, it seemed like we reduced the exercise and we also increased the likelihood that they're going to be able to get their hands on. Um, you know, some of these like uh, really, really uh, non-satiety inducing food groups with those combination things. And, um, you know, to, to add to that, too, we talked about this on a podcast a long time ago, too. I remember I was watching um, this. I think it was uh, Man versus Food. I don't know if you've seen that show before where the, the guy he just goes around and sees how if he can complete these eating challenges. And there was one where I think it was like an ice cream sundae. And he was eating and he, he ate a ton of it. And then he got to a point where like it was almost like his palate was refusing to swallow it so he ordered a plate of like uh like crispy french fries so they're real salty and savory and he ate yeah. a few of those and that all of a sudden kind of like allowed him to start eating the ice cream again because it like threw his satiety mechanisms for a loop i suppose and it's it's goofy the way they've kind of almost uh engineered food to make it so that you eat as much as you can and then come back for more and I guess keep putting more money into it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really bad because the thing is that when I grew up in the 70s, you know, we'd have recess twice a day, but nobody thought that we needed snacks. Mm -hmm. And really, if you're out there playing soccer and you're really into it because it's a fun game, the last thing you're thinking about is, oh, hey, I need a few cookies, right? You're right. just thinking <laughs> about the game. You're out there playing, right? And it's like, why do we chase... You know, you know how many times you see mothers chasing their kids around with like a cookie or a cracker? I'm like, <laughs> what the hell are you doing? Like, honestly, the cookie is not good for them in any way. Mm -hmm. You know that. I know that. Why are you chasing them around? It's like, do they have like 0% body fat that you have to worry that they're malnourished? Like, I don't think so. Um, but but we get the, to this 
state where the schools are the ones who are institutionalizing this sort of snacking, healthy snack. I'm like, there is no such thing as a healthy snack, right? The whole point is that if you go back to the 70s, people, your mother would have told you, if you're hungry, you should have ate more at lunch. You should have eaten more at dinner. Like that, that was just the way it was. And it was automatic. And that's the whole, mm-hmm. uh, the whole idea. And the other thing with exercise is that the whole thing got hijacked by you know, the, the sugary beverage sort of uh, business, right? Mm-hmm. So Gatorade, which is obviously the big name in sports, it's all sugar. And it's like, oh, but they're so into the sports that it, it, it becomes sort of intertwined that you need sugar to do sports. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that was not a very good message because what's going to happen, of course, is the sugar is going to make you fat and the exercise is going to make you healthy. So you're kind of overweight and, you know, and athletic. But it's like, why didn't you just not drink that sugary stuff and drink water or something? Like, you yeah, sure, and yet. You know, when you're talking about elite athletes and stuff, you might make an exception. But for the general sort of um, person on the street, the average sort of 15-year-old who's just out there doing a bit of this, you know, that whole that whole um, arena got hijacked. That whole exercise thing got hijacked by, uh, yeah, you can just, you know, eat whatever you want and then exercise and it'll be fine. It's like it's not fine, like especially sugar. The problem with sugar, and I go a bit into it a bit, is – that it really induces this insulin resistance in the liver. It's like, okay, so you take a bunch of sugar, you get all this insulin resistance in fatty liver. You can't hey, Jason, it. Jason, let me, let, me, let me interject real quick when you say sugar, because I think it's important, in my view, from what I understand, is we have to understand that sugar is glucose and fructose when you talk about sucrose, because I think, there's, I think there's some differences there, and I think guys like Bob Lustig would, would, would certainly comment on that, because my my understanding is fructose is probably more problematic for things like glycation and and other things down the road. So I mean, this, just to clarify, when you say sugar, you mean you're talking about sucrose? Yeah, sucrose, hundred percent. So uh, <clears throat> carbohydrates like bread is mostly glucose, whereas sucrose is sort of sugar is uh, sucrose is glucose and fructose. And I think I, I absolutely agree. I think the fructose. Is just way, way worse than the glucose. And um, what you don't find in healthy populations, even though they may be eating a lot of glucose in the form of carbohydrates, most or all of them don't eat a lot of fructose. Um, and, and it's, you know, fructose is a natural thing. They say it's like the sugar that you find in fruit. It's like true, but most societies don't eat that much fructose. It's, it's the dose that makes the poison. Let me, hey, just because I'm having, for some reason, some crazy connection issues here, so I want to make sure I get questions in because I've been dropping out. Jason, let me ask you a question about, you know, I know, Zach, we talked about this snacking sort of mentality that's kind of worked its way into society, society, when, society when we used to eat maybe less frequently. And I, and I certainly agree, and I think that's why this sort of time-restricted feeding, the intermittent fasting, the different sort of schemes where you just eat not as frequently seems to be beneficial, and I find that... For me, you know, I eat one or t- once or twice a day, and that works very well. But that's based on my appetite. Now, let me let me ask you, Jason, because you know, I know you've done a lot of work around fasting. I know you do extended fasting, you do intermittent fasting, and those things. Is there a difference for someone, you know, depending upon their metabolic health? You know, because for me, you know, I I, I believe I'm relatively healthy. I eat when my appetite dictates. It's not very frequently. And then I ask myself if I'm if I'm metabolically healthy and I'm eating. What I would what I would argue is a relatively species appropriate diet. Then why do I have an appetite? What is the purpose? What do you th- What is the purpose of our appetite? You know, all animals in the wild 
they have an appetite for a reason. Usually that means it's time to eat. So what are your thoughts around that? And then let's let's put that in the context of someone that is metabolically healthy, eating the right diet versus someone that is, you know, metabolically deranged. And we can define that however we want. Or maybe you can give us a de- definition of that and how, how that impacts extended fasting, you know, time-restricted eating, fasting on a schedule. Can you comment on that stuff? Yeah, that's a really good question because this is the thing. So, so suppose you have somebody who is overweight, obese, and type 2 diabetic. So they have too much body fat and they have too much blood glucose. In fact, their whole body actually is full of glucose. And that's the whole problem, right? Their sugars are high and they're, they've got too much, um, too much body fat. So the question is, why do they want to eat? Why doesn't their body simply shut down their appetite and say, okay, you shouldn't eat anymore. You should burn off this, this fat because you're too fat. Um, and this goes back to what we we're saying, which is that, that the being too fat is actually not good from an evolutionary standpoint. So there's actually a hormone called leptin, which was discovered, I don't know, 20 years ago, uh, which actually does this exact same thing. So if you have too much fat, your fat cells, your adipocytes, will actually send out a hormone called leptin, which tells you to stop eating. So whenever you look at these overfeeding experiments, so if you take somebody and you force them to eat, what happens is that they can gain weight, but only temporarily. And it's just, you know, it's the mirror image is the weight loss. You can lose weight, but only temporarily. And it's because as they start to gain more and more weight, their, lep- their fat cells become sort of bigger. And then they send out a lot of leptin, which goes to the brain and turns off that appetite. So as long as you force them to eat, they gain weight. As soon as you stop forcing them to eat, they actually lose all that weight. And this was first demonstrated in the 1960s by this, this endocrinologist called Ethan Sims. Um, and it's, it's instructive because it shows how the body tries to maintain this sort of uh, set weight. That is to say, he took some rats and he tried to make them fat. He gave them a lot of food, but he didn't really force them to eat. And no, none of the rats got fat. And then he tried it with humans, thinking, okay, this will be easy. Just tell them to eat lots of stuff, and then they'll gain weight. Turns out it wasn't that easy after all. Um, And that's the effect of this leptin. So then the question is, why doesn't leptin work in obesity? And it's really because the body has become resistant to the leptin. So then the question is, why is there this leptin resistance? That is, somebody who is overweight has big fat cells. The fat cells are pumping out a lot of leptin, but the body's not responding appropriately because it's not shutting down the appetite, which would happen. That is, if I was to take Zach, force feed him and make him gain 30 pounds, as soon as I stopped force feeding him, his leptin would shut off his appetite. He'd basically eat very little for the next month, and then he'd go back to his original weight. And this is effortless. This is completely effortless because you're working with your hormones. And it's because there's this, this sort of um, fight going on between insulin and leptin. So if you stimulate insulin, you're going to stimulate uh, eating and storage of body fat, and then the fat is going to go to leptin, which is going to try and turn off your appetite. So if you turn off the appetite, you don't eat as much, insulin goes down, and that's supposed to correct itself. If all of a sudden you start eating a lot of highly processed foods, that is, uh, you know, very insulinogenic foods, and eating those foods all the time, because now we've been trained to eat sort of six times a day, you're stimulating insulin all the time. That means you get a lot of leptin, and that high persistent levels of leptin just lead to a lot of leptin resistance, which is why you have this obesity. So the primary problem is this sort of 
constant stimulation by insulin, the insulin resistance, which is, um, you know, again, keeps that insulin level high, but it's related a lot to the fructose. The fructose goes to the liver, and, you know, Dr. Lustig talks about this a lot, goes to the liver, causes fatty liver and insulin resistance. So that's why your leptin doesn't work, and that's why the appetite gets so deranged, because in a normal, in a normal functioning system, it should absolutely turn off. But now the problem is insulin. So now you say, okay, now you have a metabolically deranged thing. You've had too much insulin for too long, which has led to too much leptin for too long, which has led to leptin resistance. If you understand that, then you say, okay, well, the primary problem was the insulin. Let's drop the insulin. So you can do things like intermittent fasting, ketogenic diets, that kind of thing. In the in the case of you know what you do, Sean, which is just a lot of uh, meat, it's fine because that meat activates these natural satiety mechanisms, right? And we know these things, CCK and peptide YY, so that you don't have to eat because you're not hungry. But your system is not sort of in that 10 years of hyperinsulinemia, 20 years of hyperinsulinemia. You haven't been, you know, on that. And these foods are sort of natural. There's a natural sort of balance uh, with these foods that naturally resist uh, obesity. And that's why when you go back to pictures from the 60s and 70s, you know, it's crazy because people look actually really, really thin. And nobody was trying to lose weight and nobody was watching what they ate. They, but they didn't eat all the time. And that was the real key. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. A ButcherBox subscription plan uh, that will send you meat. So it's a real kind of hassle-free, don't have to go to the grocery store type of approach that gets you high quality meat right to your door. Uh, Sean's been using ButcherBox for a while. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the, on the, uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing, or then searing it up in a cast-iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know, looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store, this is actually a fair bit more economical. And so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very uh, you know enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome. Yeah. And folks, if you want to support the show, go over to ButcherBox, get yourself an order of some high quality meat and type in the promo code HPO and you'll get a discount as well as some free bacon and you can eat that meat knowing that you help keep this podcast going. Thanks again. Back to the show. So, you know, just if you've got somebody, I know because you've got this intensive dietary management program where you take these people, I presume many of them are obese, many of them are diabetic and have other metabolic derangements and you evaluate them. Are you looking, you know, other than just the clinical stuff? Because, you know, in the end, what we're really trying to find out is how do you get better clinically? I mean, I can argue for for any disease. And then we have these biomarkers. But are you looking, are you taking insulin measurements? Are you taking leptin measurements? How do you sort of evaluate this patient metabolically? And then and then how do you, you know, I mean, assume you manage that with fasting, you know, prolonged fasting or intermittent fasting. Are you seeing those things resolve? You know, what are you, what are you measuring besides body weight? Yeah, we do a number of measurements, but most of those are very volatile. Like fasting, like 
fasting insulin actually goes up and down a lot. Um, I thought it would be useful when I started, but it turns out it's too volatile to use. You can use uh, C-peptide, which is a little bit uh, steadier uh, state. It still reflects endogenous insulin production. Uh, but leptin is not easily available, at least not in Canada, that you can measure it. So I usually use that mostly to make sure that people don't have late onset type 1 diabetes. Um, it's not as useful. Fasting insulin and C-peptides aren't as useful as you might think. I, I thought they'd be, but it turns out that they weren't. So I actually stopped using them other than to make sure that people aren't in an insulin deficient state. Because in type 2 diabetes and obesity, it's a state of hyperinsulinemia. So again, this is what always sort of boggles my mind, is that we know that in obesity and type 2 diabetes, there's too much insulin. So obviously, the answer is to lower insulin. Instead, we told people to eat more carbs, like 50% carbs, most of which were refined. It's like, you know, those are the foods that raise insulin the most. So you're taking a situation where you have too much insulin and telling people to eat foods that raise insulin. It's like, why do you think they're getting worse? And I'm always like, why do you think they would get better? Um, so, so that's the, you know, that that's the, you know, problem with, with sort of how we eat a lot, but, um, you know, I measure a lot of other things for type two diabetics, uh, specifically, which is I measure vitamin B12. And, and the reason I do this is mostly, um, covering my ass, right? Cause you don't want to be blamed for something, um, that you didn't do. So a lot of times I will pick up a lot of stuff, um, and I do it at baseline, so vitamin B12, I don't want to be blamed because somebody says, oh, I'm fasting, got B12 deficiency, because a lot of these people are metformin, which is a risk factor for vitamin B12 deficiency, or if they're vegan or something, they might be low anyway, and you pick it up sometimes just for no reason. Um, ferritin, same thing, iron, I don't want somebody to say, oh, you know, I was fasting and got iron deficient. So I want to pick these things up beforehand. I do a lot of electrolytes, so calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, um, but they almost always are normal. Uh, the main one that I do is the liver. So the ALT uh, is a measure of lizard, uh, liver um, health. So you, very often you pick up this fatty liver disease that people have no idea that they actually had. And then I'll be able to correct that with the fasting. And, and it's just one other thing for people to measure to, for me to say, look, there's actual liver damage here from your fatty liver. Like you need to take care of this because I don't want you in 30 years to have liver failure. So they, 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 they see that and then they see that it gets better when they change their diet and then they're happy that they, they prevented some problems. What, let, me, let me go back. Define diabetes for us, Dr. Jason, because a lot of people say it's blood sugar of X. Can you define, how would you define diabetes? Well, there's two types of diabetes, so type 1 and type 2. And I, you know, the, the, the definition is really uh, high blood glucose is what diabetes is. That can be due to a lack of insulin, which is type 1 diabetes, which is a totally different disease. It's not really dietary related, although you can manage it with the diet. And type 2 diabetes, which is sort of 90 to 95% of overall diabetes. It's been called adult onset. And that's the one associated with obesity. And the um, thing is that we know that it's actually a disease of too much insulin. So it is defined by the blood glucose currently. That's how, you know, you measure the blood glucose. If it's high, that's how you define type 2 diabetes. But that's actually the symptom of the disease because this, is, this has been the big problem of medicine um, is that we know that 
the type 2 diabetes, which is also high insulin resistance, it's the same thing, causes the high blood glucose. So insulin is supposed to take that glucose and push it inside the cell. So when you eat, insulin goes up, and then your body, your liver, your kidneys, and so on can take this glucose and use it for energy. So that's what it's supposed to do. When your blood glucose is high, um, then they say, well, your insulin levels are normal or high, so why is the insulin not shoving the sugar into the cell? And that's what they call insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes, but it causes this high blood glucose. And what we've done is we've pretended that the symptom of the disease, which is the high blood glucose, is the actual disease, so that if we can just shove this glucose into the cell, then everything would be fine. So that's the rationale between using insulin because you can take this um, the glucose and shove it inside the cell with a lot of uh, exogenous insulin. The problem is that that was the symptom, not the disease. The disease is the insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes. Um, what you did was you sort of you, you covered up by taking the blood glucose and made it low and then pretending that your diabetes was better. So it's no different than if you have a fever, for example. If you have a fever due to infection, you need antibiotics. But if you simply treat the fever, which is the symptom with Tylenol or whatever, you're not going to get better. That's symptomatic treatment, right? And in medicine, we know that symptomatic treatment is not treating the cause of it. So here we know the symptom of the type 2 diabetes is the high blood glucose. We treat the high blood glucose and we do nothing for the underlying diabetes. And we pretend, and then we wonder, why is it not getting better? I'm like, well, think about it for a second. If you take insulin for type 2 diabetes, you're going to gain weight. What do you think that's going to do to your type 2 diabetes? Well, it's going to make it worse. So you're going to take insulin to make your blood glucose normal, which is symptomatic treatment. Then you're going to gain weight, which will make your diabetes worse, which means you'll take more insulin. Okay, well, then as you take more insulin, you're going to get fatter, which will mean more insulin, which will make you even fatter. And you're spiraling down and down and down, all because you did symptomatic treatment as opposed to treating the root cause, which was the diet. And that's, that's the crazy part, because if insulin is too high, then you need to lower it. But drugs don't do that, and that's why nobody promotes this, because nobody's able to make money off of it. Instead, they promote the drugs as opposed to the diet, which is what you need to lower the insulin. Jason, I think that's a, that's a very uh, just a, a crucial point to make that blood glucose is a symptom rather than the actual pathophysiology. You know, when we look at what are we worried about with diabetes, you know, and I've cut off plenty of you know diabetic you know fingers and toes and legs and and, and you know and dealt with their infections for years and and there and there are other things and complications that go with that. And so we say, well, what's going on in the end? You know, we're getting arguably maybe it's glycation of these, you know, advanced glycation end products damaging the, you know, the, 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 the renal system, whether it's, you know, damaging the, the, the vascular tree or, or whatever it is, it's causing it. It's, it's actually the, 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 the effect of the glucose or arguably the fructose because fructose is, is something like 20 times more glycating than glucose is on those actual cells. And, you know, again, when we measure the blood, we're, we're seeing what's circulating around, what's actually occurring in the actual tissues is where, you know, the, the actual disease actually is occurring. And so I'll use my example because this is something that uh, a lot of people have been very sort of, there's been a lot of commentary on this. And so there's some there's some studies out there now, I don't know if you've seen them, on athletes and looking at conti continuous glucose monitors. And we had, we had a fellow on a program, a guy that deals with Olympic athletes, and he's seeing a lot of these guys that are very lean, very muscular, 
athletic, you know, uh, and yet they have a little bit higher glucose than we would normally expect for a, for a well-conditioned athlete based on glu- continuous glucose monitors. And I wonder if that is just a, again, an effect of the demand for glucose for their sport versus actual pathophysiology, which we would see typically in a type 2 diabetic. Like for my instance, I had a relatively high fasting glucose, but insulin was very low, and then I have no other sort of markers of, of metabolic syndrome, you know, waist-to-height ratio, blood pressure, fibril triglycerides, all those types of things. So I, I wonder what your thoughts are on, you know, is it glucose? Is it fructose? Is it, you know, what's going on in the tissue level versus what's circulating in the blood? Yeah, I think that the glucose is only one measure. What you really have to look at is the insulin to glucose, right? That's right. the really important thing. Because if you're insulin, essentially type 2 diabetes is a disease of hyperinsulinemia. That is more important than the glucose itself. Um, and you have to really measure both of them. Because if your glucose is high and your insulin is high, yeah, I'd be worried. Because that's, you know, that's the, the you're on the path to type 2 diabetes. But if your glucose is high and your insulin is low then basically what it tells you is that your your body is not shoving all this glucose inside the cell that's because it wants it outside the cell because it has you know it has metabolic needs right you need to run or you need to do this or you need to lift right so that just means that it's not going inside the cell you know the the thing about type 2 diabetes is that it's actually a fairly uh, simple conceptually you have to think of the body sort of um, uh, like the cells as you know, a sugar, like it's, it's full of sugar, right? The reason that the insulin resistance, you know, everybody thinks about insulin resistance in terms of the high blood glucose, but the fact is that it's not going into the cell and that's the real issue. And the question is, why isn't it going to the cells? And it's like, there's two possibilities. One is that the insulin isn't working properly. And therefore, if the glucose is not going into, say, the liver cell, what you get is a state of internal starvation, right? Because the glucose can't go into the liver cell. Liver cell inside the cell should have very little glucose. That's exactly what you see in type 1 diabetes. And if you measure liver fat, it's lower than normal because that glucose cannot get into the cell. That's not the situation you see in type 2 diabetes. These people have big fatty livers. So it's not that the glucose isn't going into the cell. Plenty of glucose is in the cell. The problem is that that cell has too much glucose already. And that's why you can't shove any more glucose into that liver cell. That liver cell, on the other hand, is busy trying to turn it into fat because it's trying to decompress itself from all this glucose that's gone in in the first place. So it's essentially just too much sugar in your whole body. right? And this is the problem. If you give more insulin, you're going to be able to shove that sugar into the big fatty liver but that big fatty liver is going to turn that into fat and then it's just going to send it all through your body it's just like these diabetic infections like you've seen them i'm sure sean but you know in type 2 diabetes you get infections that you never see anywhere else osteomyelitis it's like practically the only time you see it other than traumatic is type 2 diabetes mucormycosis and it's like why why do you get all these infections it's because there's so much sugar just floating around in that foot in the cell and the the bacteria just love it there's not enough blood sure but you don't see that sort of thing in peripheral vascular disease right you you get dry gangrene you don't get these big weeping um 
you know, sores that you get in, in diabetic osteomyelitis, right? So it's really just too much sugar all over the place, but it's, it's the effect of too much insulin. So that's why in athletes and so on, you really have to look at both the insulin and the uh, blood glucose. And the more important thing, which is what, you know, the importance of Dr. Kraft's sort of work is that the insulin is a much earlier manifestation of the tendency towards type 2 diabetes than the blood glucose. So that's really, if you're going to look at one measure, it's the insulin that's way more important than the glucose. If both are high, yes, you better, you better do something about it. But if, if the insulin is low, that's probably more important than if the blood glucose is. That, that's all interesting. I think, uh, you know, one thing I've always think about with that too is uh, I've, I'll test my blood glucose from time to time just to see what's happening. I'm more curious about kind of how my body's responding to exercise um, and then like the, the, the time after that as I am like introducing food and things like that. And one thing I'll notice when I'm in like a big training block, if I test my blood glucose right when I get back from like a big workout, it'll be pretty high. Um, and then if I test it again, maybe an hour later without, if I don't eat right after, it'll be like pretty low at that point. So it sounds like kind of what you're saying is from a blood glucose standpoint, um, like high blood glucose could just mean your body's mobilizing that energy source in order to kind of fuel the working muscles. And since I'm testing right when I get back, it could just be like that my body hasn't downregulated from the workout yet. But then when I let it do that, it kind of renormalizes. Um, cause I don't see that when I'm like on an off week or like, you know, off season, you know, that, that, then my blood glucose is almost kind of always low unless I introduce food or something like that. And it gets a little bit of a spike and then comes back down. But, um, it's interesting stuff. Yeah, that's totally, totally what you see. And some people call this physiologic insulin resistance. You see, you see the same thing in fasting. So you got to remember that glucose can be in the blood or it can be in the cells inside the tissues. And, and where it goes depends on your hormonal sort of, uh, you know, it's a push and pull sort of thing, right? So insulin is trying to push it into the cell. But there's a whole bunch of hormones that try and push it out of the cell and into the blood. And those are called the counter-regulatory hormones. So sympathetic tone, for example, noradrenaline, cortisol, growth hormone. Those are all counter-regulatory hormones because they go counter of insulin. So where insulin tries to move glucose into the cell, these hormones try to move glucose out of the cells and into the blood. And so if you're faced, for example, with a lion who's about to eat you, your sympathetic tone goes up, your fight or flight response goes up, and guess what? Your body is trying to pump sugar into your blood because you need the energy to run or fight, right? That's the fight or flight response. So it's exactly the same thing you see in exercise because your body, you're activating your body, your body's actually moving all this stuff into your blood. And that's why you test your blood glucose, it's high, and then it drops. Or if you fast, it's the same thing. You activate these counter-regulatory hormones and in people who are obese, it's sometimes a little exuberant. So people will say, okay, my blood glucose was normal and then I didn't eat for 12 hours or 24 hours and my blood glucose went up. And I'm always like, okay, well, if your blood, if your blood glucose went up and you didn't eat, where do you think that glucose came from? Well, it came from your own cells. Same thing with the exercise, right? So it's a totally natural thing, but people are so hung up on the blood glucose because that's the number that they focus on. They don't realize that there's actually different places it can go. It can go into the cell and you can't measure that, but it doesn't mean it's abnormal, right? Just because it's high outside the blood doesn't mean that it's necessarily abnormal because it just means that your hormones, because you're working out or you're fasting, have moved it from the cell out to the blood for you to use. 
when you stop working out, like you're saying, two hours later, your body's like, okay, I don't need it there anymore. Let's move it back inside. And that's why you see these fluctuations, even though you don't eat. You cannot eat and, and, and you'll still see these fluctuations. Yeah. And, and when I see that, a lot of times it's in the context of an overnight fast and like maybe just some coffee with a little bit of cream before the workout. And the workout could be upwards to two hours sometimes uh, or more. And it's like, um, it's really interesting because it's like you said, like obviously it wasn't an ingestion of food that caused that that spike in blue or glucose. So context is everything, I guess. Um yeah, one other question I kind of had in regards to fasting is, you know, I work with endurance athletes, um, and I, I, I guess when they're looking for someone who follows kind of a high fat approach, sometimes they'll come to me because they know that's kind of my approach, and uh, they'll be usually the clients that are more interested in fasting, intermittent fasting type of protocol, and um, they want to know like, well, is it good for me to to intermittent fast or to schedule fasts? And you know, my my first impression is always to tell them like. Um, it probably depends on the time of year. Like when you're in a big training block, uh, you might want to pay attention to not just the time between meals, but also the energy requirement between meals. Because when I look at like someone who's intermittent fasting, say like in a, like a six hour eating window or something like that, and they're, they're living like a, a pretty average activity for an average American, you know, they might, you know, go through, a couple thousand calories at most between those like in that non-feeding window time but then you put that in the presence of like an endurance athlete they go through that same amount of time but they also introduce a workout that maybe expends a thousand to even maybe two thousand calories or something like that if it's like a big workout do you think that they should be paying more attention to the amount of energy expended between those feeding windows or is it a mute point if they have like a healthy body fat percentage well, in, a, in, in elite athletes, the bigger, you know, one of the big problems when you're fasting is getting enough sort of nutrients in. It's, it's, it's two main things. One is that they need a lot of calories just because mm -hmm. they're expending a lot of calories. So you, you can't run a huge deficit. So if you're not eating for a certain period of time, sometimes trying to cram all those calories into a certain uh, window is tough and you saw that you see this in sort of like um, MMA fighters and stuff people who have weight class uh -huh. and they try to go up a weight class they actually find it really really hard so uh, Georges St. Pierre talked about this um, he thinks he made himself a little sick when he tried to move up in a weight class because he was trying to gain that weight sort of against his natural hormones uh -huh. so you know these are problems that uh, most people you know sort of average sort of Americans don't don't have but the other thing is that endurance athletes interestingly enough have a very high requirements for protein as well so much higher actually than than um, resistance training like weightlifters they actually have very high protein requirements um, I'm not sure why that is but it's actually like you know like 50% more than like um, weight trainers so for those people the, the runners and triathletes and all that sort of stuff they have to pay attention to that because it's 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 important they, they actually have to get all that in so you wind up having to shrink that if you are going to do the intermittent fasting you really have to you know do it maybe not every day you have to do it maybe you know less often or you have to extend it um, one of the things that people talk about is the sort of training in the fasted state um, and that's one um, really interesting sort of uh, new thing in, in athletics especially the nutrition part uh, is where you don't eat for somewhere around 24 hours 
and then you do your activity. And the point of that is that you're sort of hacking your body to get your noradrenaline levels and to get that sympathetic tone up, um, as well as growth hormone, because those are the things, remember, you don't eat for 24 hours, insulin drops, but growth hormone goes up, noradrenaline goes up, sympathetic tone goes up. So in fact, that actually activates your body uh, and actually you see sometimes mental changes. So again, in, in fighters like MMA or boxing, they want that sort of extra mental ability. They feel their senses are sharper. And it's probably true because if you look at, you know, the wild, it's like, do you really want to be the, hung, the, the, the hungry wolf or that lion that just ate? Like, who do you think is going to be more dangerous, right? It's always the hungry wolf because their senses are sharp, right? And so for them, they really want to train to be able to be in that sort of hungry wolf sort of uh, state. So your senses are heightened, but your noradrenaline's up so you can train harder, but then your growth hormone is high, so you actually recover faster. And those are huge advantages if you're talking elite athletics. So you have people who are like baseball players, like for example, that we'll work with, and it's like, yeah, if you're a starting pitcher and you go every five days, you can do that Mm -hmm. because you can fast for 24 hours or 30 hours, get your levels of noradrenaline up, get everything up and make sure you get that pitch because really the, the, the that like half an inch is the difference between a multi-million dollar contract and being in the minor leagues, right? This is no laughing matter for them. This is their life. So they want that extra little edge. For endurance athletics, it's difficult because if you're fasting for 24 hours, how are you going to get all those right. calories? all that protein in so you have to like limit that to a couple of times a week or something or what you do is you do it in the off season you get your body used to it and then just before and this works well for certain sports for example boxing or something where you can train 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 you can get all your calories in and then just before the fight you can do this and have your senses and you know your your mental agility and all this sort of stuff increase just in time for the fighters as a starting pitcher or something um, or, you know, professional basketball or something. We're not, we're not going every day. You can do it sort of intermittently. Sure. Hey, Jason, let me, let me interject here, Zach. Um, just, you know, when we talk about extended fasting and, and, I, and I'm, you know, I, however you define that, maybe it's in excess of 48 hours for who is that likely to benefit? Who might not need it? Like is a, is a person that's sort of, you know, doing well, athletically physically health wise is there some additional benefits for extending fasting for those people that they need to do it on a regular basis or is this something that you would recommend for people that are that are kind of broken how do, how do you how do you sort of wade through that i think mostly i would think that extended fasting is more beneficial for the you know when you're treating diseases of sort of overnutrition that is obesity type 2 diabetes rather than wellness which is different because if you look at what happens to the body during fasting at around 24, sort of 20 maybe to 32 hours, you get this period of gluconeogenesis where you're actually breaking down protein. Everybody thinks, oh, that's so bad, that's so bad. It's actually not bad. When you break down the protein, then your growth hormone is high. When you eat again, you'll rebuild it. So you're actually sort of renewing, rejuvenating the body in that sense. And this is this whole thing about autophagy and they're talking about sort of prevention of Alzheimer's, prevention of cancer, and all this sort of exciting research about anti-aging. That's all focused on sort of breaking down protein and then regenerating it so that you don't have just a lot of old protein sitting in your body. Once you get past that 48-hour point, for example, you're not getting, 
I don't think you're getting a lot more than that. If you look at growth hormone, for example, within 24 hours, it goes really high, but between one and five days, it does go higher, but not by a huge amount. And the other thing is that you're mostly into fat burning, so you're burning fat. So if, if fat is your major problem, that is the, um, the um, uh, you know, obesity type 2 diabetes, then getting into that extended fasting is really beneficial because ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone, starts to really drop. So hunger really starts to dissipate by day three, day four, day five. And people are living off of their fat stores, just like a bear would, for example. And it's okay because it's natural and that's what body fat is for. But that that body fat is what's making them sick. So that's the main benefit of going into that longer period is getting the fat out. Whereas if it's more wellness, athletics, that kind of thing, you're, you're good just staying in that shorter sort of 24, 30 hour range. You'll get most of the benefits. Perhaps once in a while, like once a year, you might do a longer one just in case there's a few benefits. But yeah, I, I would think that that's more down towards the uh, fat fat burning is is the main thing. Let me let me get one more topic in, Jason. I, I know you don't have much more time, but you know you 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 see people and you you, you they do some extended fastings, and so a lot of there's been a lot of uh, sort of interest in the microbiome, you know, and so we know that the microbiome is drastically impacted. You know, within within a day or two of major dietary shifts, and so when you're eating no food whatsoever, you know, obviously all these these sort of good bacteria, the fiber loving bacteria, they don't have any food, and so we're we're being told that then that's going to result in this breakdown of colonic mucus, and these bacteria are going to start attacking the colon, and so on and so forth. And so how do you how do you sort of sort of sort of reconcile the fact that they're not eating any food, the microbiome is going to be depleted. What's actually happening in actual practice versus, you know, we're speculating on assuming everybody needs to have the exact same microbiome as some Hadza tribesmen in Tanzania where this, much of this evidence has come from. What are your thoughts on the microbiome? Um, I don't, like, it's pretty new, this whole microbiome thing, and I've really not seen a lot of evidence that it plays a major role in anything, honestly, uh, especially related to obesity, type 2 diabetes, and so on. Yeah, there's occasional reports here and there that, yes, you can change your microbiome by eating this. It's like, you know, everything you eat or don't eat changes your microbiome. So which is the good bacteria? Which is the bad bacteria? Like, to me, it's 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 way too preliminary to make any sort of um, good assessment on whether this is important. Like, I don't even know that it's important because it's all sort of speculation at this point because people say, oh, if you eat this, this bacteria goes up. And it's like, well, is that, is, is that what causes all the beneficial effects? Or is it just sort of, um, you know, it, it, it's just sort of the side effect that doesn't mean anything sort of thing, right? That is, if you fast, your microbiome will change 100%. But is, do you get better from type 2 diabetes, say, because of your microbiome or is it because you're fasting? I, I, I have no idea. So a lot of this is just sort of these associations right now. So I can't really say for sure whether or not it is going to be important or not. Honestly, if you were to ask me to guess, and it's a guess, I could be wrong. My guess is that most of this microbiome stuff is not that important. That's my own feeling. But like I said, the research is all coming out. So, you know, if there's new studies, I could, you know, I, I might change my mind. But for right now, from where I'm standing, 
I don't think that the microbiome is a ma- of major importance to much at this point. That is until you can say that, you know, Sean, let me give you this bacteria and you're going to lose 50 pounds. If you have that, I'll be like, yeah, sure, that'd be great. Um, and that would prove the story of, um, of the microbiome. But I have yet to see anything that's anywhere close to that. Yeah, I think they have some some rodent studies where they kind of showed that, and then I think even some of those have been retracted for for actually not yeah. actually working. And so, <laughs> you know, that's the question is, you know, I get the same thing with you know, you're not getting any fiber in your diet, and you're not having fiber loving bacteria, therefore you're going to be sick. And yet I'm seeing in practice, which I think ultimately where the rubber meets the road, what actually happens in real live human beings when you do stuff, you know, rather than what you speculate about this microbiome and it's you know 10 million 10 billion different bacteria which we it's so complicated you're never going to be able to say i mean we can't even figure out cholesterol yet we've been studying it for 100 years you know it's kind of like we've got we've got a microbiome system with 10 billion different players and all of a sudden we're going to say yes we know the right right answer on that to me i think it's it's kind of putting the cart before the horse so to speak oh totally and this whole fiber story is totally like okay i think fiber's all right but every time you try and prove whether or not it has a benefit, it comes up negative. Like, you know that, right? It's like we've been studying fiber for like 35 years. So what happened was Dennis Burkett was this guy in Africa, and he noticed that, hey, there's not a lot of colorectal cancer in Africans, and they're eating a lot of fiber. Therefore, it must be the fiber that protects them, right? But it turns out every time you study fiber, you can't show a benefit. So they checked it for uh, colorectal cancer. They did two big studies in the New England. They did that other study, which was the diet and reinfarction trial. Remember, we gave people a bunch of fiber after a heart attack. It was actually pretty detrimental. They actually had higher, um, you know, mortality, I think. It was pretty bad. So it's like, okay, if you think fiber is so damn good for you, then how come every single reasonably done study shows no benefit where's the benefit like it the the story keeps changing first it's like it's because you're going to have these massive poos that are going to get rid of your colorectal cancer then it's your microbiome then it's this then it's that then it's this it's like okay but show me show me a study where you give people fiber and they get better if you well, can't do that, you can't say that there's a benefit. Yeah, I mean, Jason, I've seen some, some actually some RCTs where they've shown a, a drop, a, you know, a significant drop or, or clinically significant drop in LDL cholesterol, which, again, we can argue, is that truly beneficial or not? And then also with mitigation of glucose, you know, if you're eating a, a fiber-rich food with sugar, you're going to have less of a glucose spike than you're drinking pure apple juice, you know? So I think that... Yeah, yeah, for me, sure. There's, there's a few studies for that. That's, uh, you know, and I do cite them in my book, actually, um, which is why I'm not negative on fiber, but I'm not saying it's the be-all and end-all, right? Which is what a lot of people say. It's like, oh, it has to be the fiber. It's like, no, it's just a part of part of your whole thing, right? It's the whole part of the whole uh, thing. And I think if you don't and this is what I said in the obesity code too, I, I think it's more, you, you have to more think of it as an antidote to the carbohydrate. So if you're not taking a lot of carbohydrate, you probably don't need a lot of fiber. And mother nature probably knew that because when you eat a lot of protein and fat, there's just no fiber in there, right? It's, um, you know, you eat natural foods, most people are fine, like the Inui and, and stuff. They didn't eat a lot of fiber. There's not a lot, a lot of plants around. That's what Dr. Toth was telling us too when we had him on the show was that I think we asked him specifically like do you see a need of fiber in the diet and he said 
um, well, if you're following a vegetarian diet, you probably, well, you're going to probably get fiber just by default, but he said, then it probably plays a very good role to kind of counteract the carbohydrate. Um, but yeah, in the presence of, um, a fatty meat-based diet, you kind of almost remove that necessity for it, uh, more or less. So interesting. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think that that's, you know, one of these things that we have to, you know, just be aware of that if you eat natural foods, which includes meat um, and vegetables too, um, you're probably going to be all right. If you're eating a lot of processed stuff, including processed meat, right? I mean, you're not eating bologna all day, right? That's <laughs> um, and hot dogs, right? And you'd probably be pretty bad if you ate hot dogs and bologna all day. It's a carnivore diet, sure, but there's a lot of junk in there, right? So uh, same as vegetables. If you eat you know, beans and kale all day, you'll probably do pretty okay. Beans are a lot of carbohydrates. I think you'll do fine. But if you're eating bread and jam all day and donuts, that's a vegan diet. You'll do pretty badly. I think we can all agree on that too. Yeah. <laughs> Even Joel Kahn would have to agree with that. So it's not that, that it's vegetable or animal. I don't think that's the important thing. It's what's the effect on the human physiology, right? And that's, I think, more important than where, you know, whether it's, it comes from an, it originally comes from a vegetable or originally comes from a plant, your body doesn't care about that. Your body cares about, you know, maintaining a natural sort of hormonal state that's going to avoid all of these sort of problems. And most natural foods do that. That's why in the 60s, they didn't have to think about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a great just overall, you know, simple thing. And, it you know, I think everybody sort of sort of has that same message that's, that's interested in diet. I mean, there's nobody out there promoting the Twinkie diet or the Doritos diet. I mean, maybe there maybe there are some people that do that just to show that it's a calories, calories and calories out thing. But I mean, in general, I think that's pretty safe advice. Um, you know, and, and again, I think it's again, it's not the protein. It's not the fat. It's not the carbohydrate. It's what it's packaged in that I think is, is really the villain. You know, and I think it's and for some people. You know, and again, everyone's a little different, but, you know, obviously if it's packaged in a bunch of preservatives and artificial colors and flavors and high fructose corn syrup mixed with that, or if it's meat that's, you know, like I said, bologna, which has got who knows what the heck they shove in there sometimes, or even, you know, some of the, some of the, some of the, even some of the foods that we have, like, like, you know, spinach, which might be healthy for many people, but for some people it's oxalates within the spinach. It's not the carbohydrate content that is causing a problem for some people. And I think that's the way I look at it. I, I don't, I don't think any micro or macronutrients a problem. I think it's the other things that come with it that can be problematic. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And you really have to find your own um, sort of niche within like what works for you because certain things, you know, you can't put the same diet, like you put the same diet on the, on, on a bunch of people. There are people who will lose 20 pounds and people who will gain 20 pounds, but it's the same diet. So that's the thing is that, and, and as clinicians, that's what I'm always aware of is that I'm not that strict on anything because I know that what works for you may work horribly for Zach, right? It could be completely different, but the same diet. So that's why I'm not so strict on, oh, should you do this? Should you do that? I'm like, do it. See how you do. If you do great, great. If you don't do great, Let's do something else. And that's the difference between, say, an academic and a clinician because somebody who's out there in the real world knows that you got to be flexible. Somebody who's an academic is all like, oh, it's all this. It's all the fat or it's all the sugar. It's all the this. It's like, no, that's not the real world. In the real world, you have to be, you know, say, okay, well, and this is what I said. 
it's like um, for Sean, right? It's like there are all these people that attack you for eating a carnivore diet. I'm like, but you're doing fine. So why does it matter to them, right? <laughs> like who the hell cares? If it doesn't work for you, but it, it works for you, Sean, it works for, you know, Jordan Peterson's daughter, then great. Then they should keep doing it. If it doesn't work for somebody else, then they shouldn't keep doing it. That's all I'm saying, right? And it's like, you know, the clinicians will appreciate it. The academics will sort of miss the point. Yeah, I mean, I, I say with regard to the diet, you know, like, if it's not working for you, why the hell would you do it? You know, I'm just like, you know, you know, because there's 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 different sort of almost religion around around diet, as you you probably know. And it's kind of kind of amazing to see this stuff. But I tell anybody, if you're going on a carnivore diet and it's not working for you, don't do the damn thing. doesn't make any sense at all to do that. Because Jason, you, what do you oh, go ahead? Like I said, you can put you can. And we saw that with the, the diet fits trial. Right. You had a low fat and a low carb arm and. There are people who did great and badly in both arms, right? It's not like the low-carb diet did amazing for every single person in there. On average, it did better, so I think it's better, but not everybody. So to the clinician who is really just, um, you know, has to treat that person in front of him, then you got to be flexible because you say, well, you know, if you switch to a vegan diet and do great, what am I going to tell you? I'm going to tell you, keep doing it, Right. I don't do it myself, and I don't generally recommend it, but if you're doing great on it, go ahead, do it. Yeah, with a lot of this stuff, when we see some of these like new dietary approaches rise up, I think it's easy to look at them and say, oh, well, this is just a fad, this is that. But the way I think it really can be beneficial is look at it like we're adding more tools to the toolbox for these clinicians. So when they have someone come in, it's not like, well, this is what you have to do. If you can't do that, you must just concede to being overweight or having diabetes or dying early. It's like, no, we've got a variety of tools here. Pick the one that looks the best in terms of sustainability for you. Let's see how you do. If you do well, we can keep going. If not, we'll move to one of these other tools that we have in the toolbox. And I think that's probably the positive of having all this stuff out here and being able to collect this data via the internet, more or less, when you see like, Charles Washington's group of the zeroing in on health. It's like we actually have a, a populace of people who are who are doing well on a carnivore diet. Just like you head over to you know probably any vegan message board, and you can see a population of people who are more or less um, doing better than they were at one point. Um, and yeah, so then it's just adding to that toolbox. Yeah, hundred percent. That's the that's the main thing. Well, I think the nice thing about whether it's you know you know these sort of if you want to call them fads or fringes or, or just challenging physiology, because I think one of the things with, you know, what you're doing with it, with intermittent fasting and with some of the stuff with this carnivore stuff, it, it makes people question what we've been sort of led to believe for the last mm -hmm. 75 to hundred years. And those things are not sort of lining up. And a good scientist will say, wait a minute, the, 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 the actual clinical data does not match our theory. We should, therefore we should go back and maybe look at revising our theories. But as you know, what happens, we have people just dig in harder and they say, well, you know, you know, for whatever reason, they'll say, "Well, it's only working because of this or that," and it's, and it's not that our theories are bad. So they they sort of cling to their 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 sort of dogma and theory. Hey, Jason, let me ask you. Uh, I know we had uh, Trill Collasian on the other day, and he said you and Brian Lenskis and you guys got some scam coming up. Can you talk about that? what's what's new, what's next on the agenda for Dr. Jason Funk? Because you've been you've been prolific and very getting a lot of stuff done. So it's interesting to watch your career. So what's what's next on on the road for you? Um, I've got a few projects coming up, so I'm, I, you know, I have the intensive dietary management program, which we're trying, what we're trying to do is really develop a, um, 
a program that people can sort of uh, join and get the support and help they need for intermittent fasting. So that's, you know, one of the things that we want to be able to deliver it in a relatively cost-effective manner. That is not like hundreds of dollars a month sort of thing, but like something like $40 a month, something where you can get education, you can get support and all this sort of stuff. So that's, you know, something we're working on. Um, That's, you know, the intensive dietary management program. And then I've got a book coming out um, with uh, JJ DiNicola Antonio about longevity. So he asked me to write a few things in terms of fasting and so on. So one of these, um, you know, because fasting is one of the sort of health promotion things that we people have done for a long time, particularly around longevity. And, uh, you know, Dr. Longo talks about that quite a bit. Um, so there's that. And then I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to talk about it, what Tro and I are doing, but I, I, you know, I'll tell you anyway, like, I don't care, but it's, uh, <laughs> I don't uh we're working together on a, on a podcast, uh, as well, which is basically focused on, um, sort of clinic, you know, what a clinician sees. So both Brian Lenski's Tro and I are basically clinicians, so to us, what's interesting is sort of the individual stories and what you can learn as a doctor even. So having doctors who do this sort of thing, having patients who have gone through what tips we can get, you know, counselors who provide the counseling for low-carb diets. So that's uh, that's that's sort of on the horizon, um, you know, just, just being able to get it out there uh, in that manner. So our focus is not, um, it, it is more sort of towards the patient and the doctor, not sort of like, you know, it's not let that we, 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 you know, the science is there, we'll discuss it, but really what we want to focus in on is sort of the, the, the take home messages, what people can do themselves, you know, what, what doctors on the front lines can take away like family doctors, general medicine doctors, people who are actually dealing with this stuff um, can sort of take home immediately. So that's that's sort of on the horizon um, with with Tro and Brian and uh, Megan Ramos. You know, it's it's cool to see that because I, I you know again this this whole social media the way we're communicating now it's 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 sort of empowering more and more physicians to go this. It's kind of a grassroots thing, and I think that the more that this done, we you know we see that. Physicians are sharing their their success stories with others using these quote unquote you know atypical treatments you know meaning diet and lifestyle rather than drugs you know and it's something that us as allopathic physicians it really wasn't in our tool chest you know when we were given our set of tools when we graduated medical school it wasn't fasting and it wasn't low carb diets I can tell you that so but the other thing I would comment on is you know you might want to consider. I know. I think Walter Longo has patented his macronutrient ratio for his uh, for his longevity diet. You might want to patent in the macronutrient ratio on fasting. You know, it's put zero zero zero. Doctor Jason Fong. Air and patented. water. <laughs> That's right. The triple zero. <laughs> there you go. The Fong. The Fong patent. <laughs> hey, Jason. It's been a pleasure, man. It's been fun. So I've been you know I've been watching your stuff for you know just for a couple of years. And I think it's fascinating. You're putting out some great information there. So it's been a pleasure. I hopefully get to shake your hand in, in real life sometime. But uh, anyway, yeah. great stuff. Cross paths. All right. Yeah. Thanks and, again, uh, Dr. Fung. It was great okay. to have you on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. 
Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.